Hi there, my name is uh, Rulianu Rasmus and I'm a historian of religion from the University of Uppsala. Um, I'm here uh, after uh, numerous requests from followers and supporters uh, with a little comment to my um, uh, own favorite YouTuber that I am always uh, recommending, the American linguist Jackson Crawford, who recently made a video on uh, Norse calendar. Um, Jackson has made what's virtually like a, almost like a TV channel of super well communicated material on uh, Norse studies and it's really impressive. You can basically uh, uh, sit back at home and pro probably bring yourself to a BA level in Norse studies by using his channel. It's quite astonishing. Uh, so when I sometimes enjoy to debate a little bit uh, with uh, Jackson's um, uh, videos and information. This should be understood unambiguously as an expression of appreciation, really. The uh, Norse web is dense with shite info and Jackson's channel is really like a beacon of uncompromising high quality, both in its communication and its content. Um, right, and my view is also why it's worth debating it and perhaps adding uh, different perspectives. And uh, I've worked from calendar from a somewhat different perspective. So I'll just uh, take Jackson's cue here and chip in a little bit. I have uh, comments on Jackson's idea that uh, prehistoric people's way of reckoning was somehow a little bit rough and fluffy and imprecise. I also have a comment on the notion that quote unquote native culture was not present in the Christian calendar that was probably implemented in the Middle Ages, and also specifically on Jackson's uh, rejection of the god god named Thor in relation to Thor month. Right, um, but before I, I get to my points on Jackson's video, I'll just tell you a little story. <laughs> in um, in the year 1689. Uh, the somewhat idiosyncratic early modern humanist Olof Rudbeck went to the Swedish Disting market in Uppsala. And uh, here he met an old man who explained Rudbeck how he knew when to go to Uppsala for the, to participate in the market. And he, the old man said a couple of interesting things. The full moon of the Disting could be predicted by a runic calendar that was in his family for generations. His father had marked on it uh, how, how to know the moon that would uh, mark the Disting market. But now the full moon that marked the Disting fell one day after the prediction of this old rune stuff. Now, why was this? Because, the old man explained, the full moon of the Disting had run around with Aoni, he used this weird expression, which meant that for approximately 300 years from now, it would be pushed one day in relation to the prediction of the runic calendar. Now, this little story is interesting for a couple of reasons. The Disting uh, was the day of an ancient heathen celebration, the almost legendary sacrifices at Uppsala. And apparently in the late 17th century, the Disting, uh, now being a market, was still timed by the moon. Um, the old man, what the old man is saying here is a very specific piece of astronomical knowledge, which is that after 304 years, <laughs> the 19-year cycle of the moon, the so-called metonic cycle, which underlies runic calendars, 
gains one day in relation to the Julian calendar. <laughs> the metonic cycle is the fact that the pattern with which the moon fluctuates on the dates repeats itself after 19 years. You know, and it will take some time to explain all the details of this, but just take my word for it that, like, you don't understand it properly. <laughs> and it's remarkable that an old Upland farmer in the late 17th century, who probably never saw the inside of the school, was able to articulate this um, piece of astronomical knowledge. Um, but also uh, notice uh, the specific language with which he expresses this knowledge. Because the uh, old man actually uses a pre-Christian heathen mythological concepts to explain this. This approximately 300-year cycle is identified with a mythical King Aun of Uppsala, who in Snorri Sturluson's Inglinga Saga uh, uh, figures as a mythical founder of some of the cycles that defined when the Uppsala disting would occur. Right. Uh, in the following, I hope it will become clear why I'm using this 17th century story to give a little addendum to Jackson's description of, of a pre-Christian Nordic calendar. And it should also be stated that my perspective on Nordic reckoning is different from Jackson's. Um, I, what I'm interested in doing is trying to lay a perspective down through history that uses different periods, looking for specific kinds of relating to time, an animist relation, and sort of bring those out for us to understand them, dialogue with them, and so on. What Jackson is doing is looking at specifically what medieval manuscript material indicates about one specific context, the pre-Christian context, possibly even the pre-Christian West Nordic uh, context, that's Iceland and, and Norway. Uh, but I also sort of think that observing the way, ways that people in Northern Europe has understood time through the centuries, it also actually gives some perspective perspectives that with you know some measure of caution can be projected backwards also um, but perhaps I'll get back to that um, I'll start with the overall problem that I'm, I'm seeing in, in Jackson's representation and that is the idea that people back in the day were somehow a little bit rough and perhaps fluffy about the way they kept track of time by their lunar months and so on um, so they wouldn't have our precision on when to agree on a date and, 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 and meet up and so on. Now, this is an idea of the past that I think needs some modification. Uh, I often see among scholars a uh, tendency to project our own contemporary lack of capacity to hold things in our heads, head back on times where writing was less prevalent uh, and where humans applied themselves much more to keeping stuff in their head. Now, knowing by heart large amount of text is actually quite common. Uh, researchers, for instance, on epic traditions sometimes experience that an old man will come up and he'll just sit down and sing a, a full epos the size of the Odyssey. And that's not uncommon. Uh, and when you look at how oral culture handles reckoning, then you find methods that are quite precise, I think, and in some cases surprisingly surprised, like this old man in the 17th century who uses this quite traditional means, the, the runic calendar staff, to express uh, reckoning with a quite high level of astronomical uh, precision. But there are a number of ways to measure time that doesn't even rely on that level of 
written culture. We see that people in oral Northern Europe kept a very tight track of changing lights. So there are these little proverbial little rules that give very visual expressions of how the light changes in relation to specific dates. Um, there has also been systems to spot the exact moon phase by holding out your hand and measuring uh, with relation to your fingers uh, somehow. And researchers have found that uh, there's a surprising level of precision to this. Uh, there has also been system, systems to count on your fingers and count on the digits of your fingers in order to keep track of, of, uh, of time. Uh, these methods are intuitive and easy to handle, and that's why they work and survive in oral culture. Um, it should also be mentioned that it is in fact very possible that pre-Christian Scandinavians actually had calendars like the old man in, in Uppsala or comparable to it uh, because the calendar staff that started to become uh, popular in the Middle Ages, they may in fact represent earlier traditions of reckoning. We don't really know. Uh, the earliest are found from the 13th century uh, uh, and, and from there on uh, we we sort of find them, but it's regarded as a possibility. Uh, so I think it looks, what, what I think it looks like is that people had fairly good ways of predicting time and coordinating themselves. Um, it was people who organized, was able to organize rather grand scale military campaigns, for instance, and people would gather from large areas on set dates uh, year after year, for instance, the the these thing here, uh, and they would also keep track of when 99 lunar months had passed, so that all the Swedes would uh, meet for uh, these octannual gatherings in, in Uppsala or all the Danes in, in Lethra. Right, <clears throat> so Jackson also says, and this is a second point uh, I want to make, he says that at the point of implementation of the medieval church calendar, you are not finding quote-unquote native cultural information in there. Now, scholars of Nordic history of religions often understates uh, uh, that, or they underemphasize, I think, synergies and interfaces between Christian and heathens, uh, heathen worldviews in the period where Christianity became powerful in Scandinavia. And there are mythological reasons for that, I won't go into it. But what it means is that they tend to see this very clean break between the society under heathen and under Christian domination. It, um, when they talk about it, it almost becomes like installing a new operative, operative system on your computer. It's like a completely different reality that suddenly emerges. But the rise of power of Christianity in Northern Europe is a long and rocky road where things like combine or coexist in tension and struggle and eclipse each other or hack each themselves into each other's sim symbolic language in myriads of ways through centuries. So w when you see even these high-level international scholars stating that Snorri wrote 200 years after Iceland became Christian, I'm always sitting like, that, that Iceland isn't a thing that even can become Christian. Iceland is a space in which Christianity can combine with social power in specific ways and perhaps become normative, but that's a very different thing to say. Uh, this doesn't happen uh, some afternoon in, in a sharp break like that. It takes a long time. 
Like even in southern Scandinavia, where Christianity were uh, implemented the quickest and most complete implementation, people were still praying to Thor in the 17th century. You know? A Norwegian farmer would still give a cow as a burial sacrifice to his dead father in the late 19th century, almost in the 20th century. So it's a long and rocky road with many complexities and contradictions, the implementation of Christianity. And Reckoning is a good example of this. Some people start with lunar months into the 20th century. And uh, I believe that many of the logics of the pre-Christian so-called lunisolar reckoning were transmitted uh, in the medieval so-called metonic system of predicting the moon uh, phases. Uh, it just had a quite high level of compatibility with pre-Christian re uh, reckoning. Uh, the runic calendars, for instance, were used to spot moon months or count the moon months. And they continue to be of ongoing importance. Uh, people use these moon months to predict uh, the agrarian year or even to address the moon with offerings and so on. And of course, these uh, runic calendars, they predict Christian holidays such as Easter and Sundays and so on. But they also predict an, an ancient holiday such as the Disting, as in my, my opening example. So though practice, practices changed the moon dating of, the, of this pre-Christian pre holiday, the uh, Disting was still going on in the 17th century. Now, the point is that these things do not exist in parallel universes. They very much enter into synergy with each other. The um, so-called Julian calendar is normally thought to have been implemented in Scandinavia uh, with Christianity and in the Middle Ages, but it doesn't have zero interface with native tradition because culture isn't st structured in these coherent blocks of practices and meanings uh, that doesn't interact and have perhaps their own defining character. That's not how culture is, is uh, seen by, uh, by contemporary scholarship. There isn't any core in a cultural space that defines the entirety of a, a culture and which then has relatively sharp borders to other neighboring coherent cultures. Uh, culture is always mixed. It grows from the mixing and the, the exchange. So what you see in Scandinavia is that the medieval ways of reckoning are very much informed by and mixed in with the uh, pre-existing local ones. Uh, and uh, again, uh, the old uh, Swedish man in, in Uppsala is a, is a good example of this. He describes the period where the imprecision of the metonic cycle of the moon uh, amounts to a day. <laughs> And he says that the moon runs around of Auni, Umlupit, Umlupit, with Auni. And Aun was a mythical king who uh, uh, was recorded by Snorri Sturluson as founding the cycle of eight years with which the great heathen Disting gatherings, uh, the Ting of all Swedes, uh, were being held. And he's, uh, in the myth, Aun sacrifices his nine sons, one every year, and these nine years uh, mark those eight years between these ten markets. Every ninth year in medieval counting sometimes actually mean what we would call every eighth year. Uh, it, this is called inclusive counting, meaning that you, you actually you start counting from one. So you go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And then you start on that one. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. So you get eight when you're counting to nine. Um, 
Yeah, and if you read Scandinavian, uh, then the Swedish <laughs> scholar Andreas Norberg has explained this complicated stuff with uh, lucid clarity in his uh, thesis from uh, Schmalkalm University. Uh, right, and Aun was this mythical king who, whose dealing, dealings define this these things celebration. And there's another myth that tells how he repeatedly uh, was driven out of Uppsala for periods of 20 years. There were also narratives of his lifetime as being 300 years. So uh, the period that this uh, 300 years, the period that this um, old man named an Aoni's cycle or something like that. So there are reasons to believe that these 20 years that he was driven out of uh, Uppsala could perhaps actually refer to 19 years according to this uh, inclusive counting system. And this is one of the two indications <laughs> that uh, pre-Christian Scandinavians may perhaps have been aware of the Metonic cycle. The Metonic cycle being the fact that the fluctuations of the moon repeat themselves in blocks of 19 years Except for the fact that over 304 years, uh, this 19-year pattern is pushed one day, right? <laughs> and it looks like that this period of the fluctuation of the Metonic cycle uh, has become identified with, with Aon, these 300 years. And uh, of course, it's interesting and it's unclear how this happened. Did astronomical scholarship seep out from the Uppsala University so that already in the 1600s uh, you know uh, these Swedish farmers uh, would have somehow gotten that and also gotten the idea to identify it with a marginal figure from an Icelandic source that was not available to them in the 17th century. Um, well, the, the, the tradition of King Aun probably just survived in, in oral transmission in Sweden but how did it combine with the 300 years cycle in this astronomically precise way? The story is a little bit of an, an enigma, uh, but whatever uh, it means, it certainly does indicate that there is an intense and deep knowledge interface between the native knowledge forms and knowledge systems of a more recent consol consolidation, such as Christian uh, reckoning, perhaps even uh, astronomical scholarship. And that's what tradition is. It's, it's renewal, it's mixing. So if you look back through history uh, like this, then I think uh, there's a more complex reality than just that Christian and native reckoning are two distinct system, systems. Um, and this brings me to uh, Jackson, Jackson's uh, interpretation of uh, Thori in Thor month, because uh, like a number of scholars, uh, Jackson rejects the association of the god name Thor in Thor month, which in Icelandic is Thorri. Uh, and in my view, this relies partly on what a, a friend of mine called linguistic essentialism, which is the idea that uh, a word has one root, and that one root is sort of the end result of how we understand the word. And this is not how mythological language works. Uh, it's probably not how language works per se, but I'm not a linguist, so I'll leave that to other people, but it's certainly not how mythological language and names uh, operate. If you, look at, uh, if you look at that, words have many meanings and connotations, and their, their surface connotations 
certainly are an important part of their meaning. So in other parts of Scandinavia, uh, the name of, of this month has forms that are more similar to the name Thor than in, in Iceland. Uh, and uh, it, 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 of course, it can be difficult to know how back this association goes uh, between the month and, and the deity, but it, it's clear that at times people certainly have seen this uh, association. In uh, southern Scandinavia, there's a kind of a complex of folklore that uh, revolves around this month, uh, which has these uh, Thor nuances, or this smells, uh, smells the pot, kind of. Uh, for instance, people associated the month name with the Thursdays. So they kept, uh, and people kept uh, Thursdays sacred to Thor far into modernity. Uh, so, and then they also had the Thursdays of Thor, meaning the Thursdays of Thor month, that was connected with specific um, specific traditions. Uh, and again, it's difficult to see how far back this complex goes, but people certainly saw some kind of connection there. And when you look at both the, the folkloric sources and the medieval manuscripts, such as the uh, Venerable Bede, or the, is it called the Fundin Nordics, that uh, Crawford also um, mentions, then there's one particular feature that stands out, and that is that months in the beginning of the year are certainly personified. And this is a general trend. They're personified in different ways throughout Northern Europe and changes through time and context and so on. And sometimes they're personified with deity names, uh, such as the English uh, goddesses Hretha uh, and Eustre. I'm not sure of my pronunciations here. Um, but uh, and this, I think this, by the way, is, is an advantage in drawing on later folklore. When you look back at these periods with scarce source material, you can see tendencies, such as personification of months uh, during winter and early spring. Um, Thori has been personified in Iceland as a figure, you know, that's really some kind of a badass angry Santa Claus or something like that. And uh, Thor month in, in other parts of Scandinavia has also been personified as a figure named Thor in proverbs and so on. Um, so the question is really, did people in pre-Christian times not see this? Uh, it would almost be an exception. And when, when they started, and then at some point people started seeing it and building associations on it, and even rituals on it and so on. It's not impossible, uh, but I doubt it. And even if some of the other suggestions for the etymology on, on Thormund month might be valid, you know, some have suggested that uh, tort really means manure, so it has to do with some agrarian practices of manure, uh, or ter, to, to dry, uh, Jackson Crawford has diminished as something like that. Even if uh, one uh, of these suggestions gives us the actual cognate root of Thori or Thor month, then the surface similarity to the god named Thor is still there. And yeah, as I said, people have seen this similarity uh, uh, through the ages, or at times at least. So the question is, did they not see it when our sources stopped telling us about it? Uh, when we get so far back that our sources stop telling, telling us about it. Uh, possible, but even if we assume that Viking Age Icelanders, for instance, didn't see it, uh, then notice actually how this radically enforces another one of my points. And that is that the forms of reckoning um, 
after Christianity became powerful, are very much colored and in synergy with indigenous notions. In, in this case, uh, the god Thor. Yeah. Anyway, uh, this was just a couple of comments on my idol, cowboy YouTuber, Jackson Crawford's uh, recent um, video. And uh, see you around and have a good time.